Welcome back to the People's Tax Pod. I'm your host, Adam Poisner, and I'm joined today by the People's Tax Panel, David, Vivian, and Phil. At the People's Tax page, we believe that America is plagued by three big issues. First is our growing inequality. Second is the tax system's role in exacerbating this inequality. And the third is how the tax code can be used as a solution to this problem. Smarter tax policy would ensure that the upper class pays its fair share of taxes, benefiting all Americans. This week, we wanted to continue our discussion about wealth inequality. Though there are many ways to view inequality in America, we wanted to discuss the issue under the lens of race. Racial wealth inequality is quite evident, which makes it a prime example for showcasing how wide scale the issue extends. David, would you mind walking through some of the historical reasons for this divide? Absolutely. The tax system has historically favored traditional, typically white households and incomes. You know, one of the things we'll see is wealth begets wealth. This is a theme we're going to see recurring through the remainder of this episode, and it's also not news, nor is it a novel observation. There are countless articles highlighting how early gains have paid off across the last several centuries for white people. What we want to emphasize in this episode is how this bare fact that white people are favored by dint of race is an example of an unjust inequality. White people are, on average, to start with, born with more money. The average black family has a net worth of $17,000, but the average white family has a net worth of $170,000. It's literally a tenfold difference. For all but the wealthiest Americans, the majority of their wealth is tied up in real estate. They save money by making a greater initial down payment, and then they're paying down a mortgage that will eventually come back into their own pockets when they sell their house, or at least partially come back into their own pockets. You know, having money means that these families are also more prepared to invest in early childhood education and health. These are forms of wealth transfers that will pay off across the lives of their children, even if the parents ultimately die without anything to pass on, any cash to pass on. They were able to invest in their children early on, and their children will have better health outcomes, lower health costs, they'll have increased earnings for the rest of their lives. And so it's, you know, another example of these early advantages just compounding. Ultimately, this way, even even if these white families don't have money when they die, they've, they've already transferred that wealth, they've already given their children advantages, and they've already set them on this path to compound their growth and to be better competing, quote unquote, in this field. And I think that's ultimately like the point that we're going to see across this episode, across a couple of, of other episodes, is just that these inbuilt advantages benefit white people pretty substantially. And that is the inherent unfairness of it. And a lot of it does come from the tax system. Thanks, David. This reminds me of another issue that plagues Black and other minority communities, underbanking. Underbanking is a multifaceted issue, but in this context, it boils down to the fact that there are many people, especially those within minority communities, who while technically have access to banks, end up using alternative forms of financial services, such as prepaid debit cards, check cashing services, and payday loans. This means that they end up paying much higher interest rates on their loans, and they're unable to build proper credit and continue to be stuck in perpetual poverty. One might wonder, with all of these disadvantages, why would people choose to be underbanked? Well, at least for the Black community, there is an intense distrust for the banking system due to the unfair treatment of, of the Black community. In the past, banks would treat Black customers unfairly if they even allowed Black individuals to use their services. This is a major form of inequality as it perpetuates the inability for communities to build wealth. 
One of the major forms of wealth stability in America is home ownership. Phil, can you go over the current inequalities surrounding home ownership? Yeah, Adam. Housing equity makes for more than 16% of total U.S. household wealth. So it's pretty easy to see how it's an important tool for all Americans to build wealth. But even in 2019, white households had a 73% home ownership rate, Hispanic households 47%, and Black households 41%. Like David mentioned in last podcast, the objective inequality in these numbers isn't necessarily bad. What's bad is the inequality in ability inability to use a tool of accumulating wealth, something that can seem impossible for many non-white communities. There's no one reason for inequalities in home ownership by race, but I'll cover two important and pretty clear-cut ones. The first is the old and now commonly known practice of redlining. It was an effort by the Federal Housing Administration and the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which are both parts of the New Deal, to refuse mortgages to households in and near minority community neighborhoods. Taking place from 1933 to 1977, it decimated the monetary value of minority neighborhoods and artificially increased that of mainly white neighborhoods. So you may think, hey, didn't that stop 50 years ago? Shouldn't it no longer be affecting minority communities? The actual practice may not, but its consequences still ripple through the housing market. And there are many consequences. There's worse education, there's 40 years not being a terribly, or 50 years not being a terribly long time, a faulty criminal justice system, and more. But one particularly insidious consequence is the lack of capital bestowed upon these disadvantaged households. Redlining allowed for white families to own exorbitantly more capital than minority families. So what if white families own more property value? You may say, that doesn't prevent minority households from gaining wealth through income. Well, actually it does, because the growth rate of capital is much higher, particularly over the second half of the 20th century, than that of wages. This is something that was established by Thomas Piketty from the Paris School of Economics. This means that white families who were arguably bestowed capital in the wake of the Great Depression were able to make large sums of money without doing any work. Meanwhile, minority families could not build wealth through capital and so could not grow their wealth at the same rate as white families. Red light neighborhoods in the South and the West are now more likely to be home to a largely minority population. That's just one reason for housing inequality. And another reason that's very easy to see, and Adam, you touched on this with underbanking, is a category of predatory lending, which is subprime lending. And you might be familiar about this from The Big Short, which was a famous movie documenting the 2008 financial crisis, but subprime lending gives access to housing at a great or ambiguous cost. So it can seem like a lifesaver for individuals or families who are low on cash and need to take out debt, but there's a catch, higher than normal cost of borrowing. This is one of the main reasons behind the great financial crisis. Financial institutions incorporated the practice of steering, which is issuing subprime loans to homeowners who actually qualified for normal conventional prime loans. That means encouraging buyers to take on a subprime high interest rate, high cost loan, which benefits the creditor from various mortgage companies, even though these families, individuals qualified for better quality loans. Although financial institutions preyed on low income, elderly and minority communities, their efforts were particularly concentrated in communities of color. The consequences of this are you know, truly terrible. 
when these new homeowners ultimately couldn't pay back their loans, they would not only have to leave their households, but would have severe difficulty in finding a new home or even renting an apartment. Now, after 2008, financial regulations tightened on subprime lending, but similar loans have recently reemerged from the depths in the form of online installment loans, which I mentioned in a previous podcast. These loans are not quite as unfair as the great financial crisis causing subprime loans, but they also have terribly high interest costs that are likely to push highly burdened debtors to default. There's not a ton of current evidence that these loans specifically target communities of color, but they are heavily advertised toward minority-owned businesses and families. Unfortunately, these loans aren't getting the scrutiny or attention they may deserve because they're not being traded by institutional debt investors at the same rates as the mortgage-backed securities which perpetrated the 2008 great financial crisis. But that doesn't mean they're not hurting the little guys. Thanks, Phil. The detailed explanation you have on the division in housing was quite helpful. Obviously, homeownership is just one of the many forms of capital. Vivian, I understand you have some more information on some of the other forms of capital. Can you go over how we see this racial inequality in other forms of capital? Absolutely. Thanks, Adam. As you alluded to, Adam, with underbanking and also, as Phil mentioned, racial disparities in access to capital have persisted. And this was demonstrated in the first draw of the Paycheck Protection Program last year in 2020. As you may already be aware, the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, was a program designed to provide loans to help businesses, specifically small businesses, keep their workforces employed during the pandemic. PPP loans also have the potential to be forgiven based on certain criteria. So it's worth noting that there are approximately 1.1 million minority-owned small businesses in the U.S. These businesses employ over 8.7 million workers and account for over a trillion dollars in revenue. So they're very important to our economy and are also particularly vulnerable during this pandemic because a large number of them are in uniquely vulnerable industries. Think restaurants, grocery stores, beauty salons, laundry services, it goes on. All of these industries largely rely on in-person interactions. That being said, we can see the disparate impact of the pandemic on minority-owned businesses. We saw the number of Black-owned businesses decrease by over 40% between February and April, right at the beginning of the pandemic. In contrast, the number of white-owned businesses decreased by 17%. Both of these are unfortunate figures for sure, but we can see the disparity there. And given those figures, it's doubly concerning that the first draw of PPP loans were not proportionately distributed to minority-owned businesses. Could you go over the structural explanation for how this happened? So first, even though PPP is a program administered by the Small Business Administration, small business owners were required to apply for these loans through third-party lenders. So lenders such as banks, credit unions, or fintech companies. The lender would then exercise control over approving or rejecting that loan application. And according to August data published by the SBA, 47% of PPP loans were made by lenders with over $10 billion in assets, which signifies that large lenders like JP Morgan, Bank of America, and PNC were at the forefront of this first draw. These large lenders were, first of all, inundated with applicants, and second of all, often refused to accept applications from anyone who wasn't already a customer. The implication of this was that minority business owners 
who were less likely to have prior accounts or lines of credit with these large banks, were also less likely to have access to PPP loans, at least through you know, this large bank channel. In addition, a large majority of Black-owned businesses are companies without paid employees, so-called non-employer firms, often independent contractors. This further exacerbated the disparity in access to PPP because while one in four Black-owned employer firms have a recent borrowing relationship with a bank, only one in 10 of Black-owned non-employer firms have this type of relationship with a bank. So again, we see the disadvantages compound. That being said, there have been positive structural changes in subsequent PPP draws, especially during this Biden-Harris administration. For instance, greater shares of the funding have been distributed through community development financial institutions, as well as minority depository institutions, which don't have as stringent of requirements as those large banks I mentioned. In addition, the share of funding going to small businesses with fewer than 10 employees has increased by 60%, also a really positive development. And even looking at our first PPP draw, we saw that fintech firms and online lending companies gave a higher percentage of PPP loans to Black-owned businesses compared to their big bank counterparts. That's all to say that we have a long ways to go, and access to capital for minority business owners remains a very relevant issue, especially during a pandemic with such racially disproportionate impacts. Vivian, that's all fascinating. And it's also not entirely surprising to me because the government's role in, in racially disparate economic policy is hardly new. Our current tax system has been built for decades for two-person households with large discrepancies between the incomes of the two earners. The income tax system treats marriage by combining your two earnings into one number and then basically doubling the size of your brackets. So that means that if you if one person earns a lot of money, say $500,000, and the other person doesn't work, then we're treating both of those people as if they earn $250,000 instead of as if it was one person earning 500,000 and one person earning nothing. That's essentially how this works. Pay grows exponentially and white people overwhelmingly fill the ranks of high paid jobs where this benefit is the greatest. So everyone else is really left with the full burden of the income and payroll taxes while the people who have these exponentially greater incomes are able to be taking big tax deductions essentially by getting married and by maybe even not working. For the other partner. To highlight this point, in recent years, Black individuals have earned a median income between $40,000 for Black females and $41,000 for Black males per year. White individuals, by contrast, have earned a median income of $47,400 for white females and $57,600 for white males. This means that by marrying, a couple of two white people would see a benefit of about $5,000 to their taxable income, while a couple of two Black people would see a benefit of only $500 to their taxable income. This is really a natural result of making the nuclear family structure morally superior and designing tax codes around it than other structures. But we'll talk about, about that more in, in the next week. For this week, we should realize that white people have built themselves a pipeline into these high-wage jobs, and then they benefit from the bias for these jobs that is built into the tax code. The tax system also gives another discount to income generated off of capital rather than wages. 
As I mentioned earlier, the average white household has 10 times the wealth of the average black household. So a white household with that $170,000 invested would expect that to approximately double over the next 10 years to $340,000. And they would only have to pay 20% income tax on it. If an average black household with $17,000 invested wanted to similarly earn an additional $170,000 over the next 10 years, only 10% of that would come from their capital gains and be taxed at that lower rate. The remaining $153,000 would have to come from their wages, and that would be taxed closer to 40%, twice that of the average white household. So what we're seeing is that white households having wealth and then earning money off of wealth gives them a discount on that extra income they get on top of higher wages. Thanks, David, for drawing attention to how the tax system favors taxpayers with certain lifestyles or family structures. You mentioned racial disparities in wealth generation, and I'd like to continue this line of thought and bring up economic inequality as experienced by women of color, specifically Black and Latinx women. Compared to white women, a relatively higher percentage of Black and Latinx women work in service and production industries. These are primarily low-paid wage jobs. And as David alluded to, these are not the type of jobs that facilitate wealth creation. In addition, we also see racial disparities in weekly earnings. On average, white women make $734 a week. This is greater than what Black women make on average at $611. Latinx women make even less on average at $548 per week. And as we know from last week's episode, low-income individuals on average spend a larger portion of their earnings on living expenses, leaving them with little savings. Black and Latinx women have on average a lower weekly earnings baseline, but face comparable costs, leaving them with relatively less savings. We see the wealth gap amplified even more broadly if we consider median wealth for young families across different demographics. According to the Federal Reserve, the median wealth for young Black families is $600, basically nothing, whereas the median young white family has a wealth of $25,400. It's also worth noting that within these households, Black and Latinx mothers are more likely than white mothers to be the primary or the sole breadwinners for their families and are also less likely to have access to paid sick leave and paid childcare leave. These circumstances, as you can imagine, are both financially and mentally taxing. The takeaway is that on average, Black and Latinx women are earning less than their white counterparts and are less likely to have large amounts of savings. As a result, they are especially vulnerable during times of economic insecurity, such as the pandemic, which we are now all experiencing. Where does this leave us? Here at the People's Tax Page, we believe that it's incredibly important to analyze economic inequality through the lens of race, especially from an intersectional standpoint. As Americans, we need to understand that certain groups and individuals frequently stand at the convergence of multiple structural disadvantages. Having this understanding provides us with essential perspective on why our current tax system is perhaps even more unjust than we initially imagined. Thank you, Vivian, for going over the different capital disparities, as well as reminding us there are groups who are hit doubly as hard by inequalities. Also, thank you, David, for going over some of the tax sides of this inequality. Racial wealth inequality is not a new issue, and we've actually talked about it before in an interview with David K. Johnston, who has been describing this issue for the last few decades. Sadly, it also doesn't seem to be going anywhere, as many of the key underlying causes are not being addressed currently. 
Many of the disparities we've discussed today are not bound to one specific race or ethnic group. There are two major reasons to discuss this topic in these terms. First, the inherent inequality of having restricted access to wealth based upon an arbitrary factor such as skin color or ethnicity. The second reason is that the issue of wealth inequality is entrenched in class or income differences, and many of these disparities are highly visible when looking at specific racial and ethnic groups. We recognize that there are other ways to categorize wealth inequality, and next time we hope to delve into another one of these major differences. Thank you again, David, Vivian, and Phil for joining me today to discuss the issues of wealth inequality under the lens of race. To our audience, thank you all for listening, and we hope you were able to learn something or think about these topics in a new light. If you have any questions or want to subscribe to our newsletter or donate, head over to the peoplestaxpage.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at People's Tax Page. You can also rate and subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud at People's Tax Pod. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.